I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Multi-Studio, and I am joined once again by our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back. Hey. It's been a while. What do you know? It has been a while. Um, <laughs> I have had uh, some very uh, good days on the road. I think like a couple of weeks ago when we were set to record, I was at Disneyland for the day. So I'm like, I... I can't do it then, but um, yeah, yeah, more fun than upzoned, I guess. <laughs> um, well, I don't know as I go that far, but uh, it was a it was a fun time. Right. But yeah, it's nice to be back, and I'm you know back for a, a little bit now. I think I have uh, just two trips between now and like the end of August, so we should be uh, should be on glide for a while. Well, and you've spent a little bit of time in California over the uh-huh. past few weeks, which I I think very much aligns with the article that we're talking about today, um, which is all about preemption. So uh, this this article is specifically from Governing and published by Jake Bloomgart, and it is entitled The Bad Things That Happen When States Tell Cities What to Do. So the article details an interview with a University of Virginia law professor named Richard Schrager, I think is how it's pronounced. I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. Okay. So he authored a book in 2016 titled City Power, Urban Governance in a Global Age. The article's author talks about how cities today are really struggling from an array of complex issues that have really only been magnified over the past two years and why Schrager's book is very relevant as they pursue economic recovery strategies into the 2020s. One of Schrager's key thesis points is that municipalities really need to focus on providing basic municipal services as best as possible, rather than pursuing mobile capital to the exclusion of local interests, and he advocates against state preemption and is interested in really re-articulating the appropriate constitutional relationship between cities and states generally. He's also expressed skepticism about regionalism as a viable strategy for equalizing the resources between cities and suburbs. So his view is that state and federal level land use interventions are typically disastrous. And he cites urban renewal and the Mount Laurel doctrine as examples. So he shares a lot of he shares concerns that state preemption will actually be used to override local opposition in a way that promotes market rate developers at the expense of low-income urban neighborhoods and that local reform to zoning really needs to be driven by affordable housing coalitions and activists and people at the local level. So these stances have attracted a ton of criticism, um, especially from the YIMBY-oriented movements that do advocate for state preemption as a strategy for overturning uh, certain aspects of local zoning laws that prevent housing construction. So, you know, even so, Schreger is a critic of suburban zoning due to its impact on housing supply municipal budgets, but he just disagrees with using state preemption as a way of combating the issue. 
So this is one of those issues that, you know, it's, I would say in the planning world, it's very controversial. It's something (laughs) that, you know, you see it in the housing world, but it gets applied in all kinds of ways, even beyond land use. You know, as a principal, I don't know that I have a hardline stance on whether or not it's good or bad. Um, And I I actually don't think you can make a blanket statement necessarily about state preemption. Um, But I did want to ask you, Chuck, is there a strong town's stance on state preemption specifically with regard to zoning to regulate housing? It's a really good question because, you know, I would say it's one of those things that we have debated internally and that there's not a, um, you know, there's not a clear cut consensus in in a sense. Although I I will say, you know, as, as you're reading and describing Schrager, like that's where my heart is. That's where my gut is. I, I think to help people with this conversation, it might be best to look at Republican attempts at preemption as opposed to Schrager. Schrager is very sensitive to the left of center attempts to do this, right? Like he doesn't like the housing enforcements and all these things. This is a bipartisan thing. Governments do this all the time. So in Florida, uh, the state of Florida has preempted uh, local control on a whole bunch of things. Uh, they, I mean, they recently disbanded the, uh, the Disney control of their own county, they have put caps on the amount of tax revenue that local governments can raise, their increase in taxes. Uh, they have intervened in uh, local government decision-making regarding land use. Uh, I can go to North Carolina where you know our friend Joe Manicosi has told me for years about how the state has come in and taken the city of Asheville's water system and said, you, you don't get to control your own water system. You have to provide service to these people and these people and these people, even at a loss. There's a, there's a long history of Republican legislatures looking at local government, which often they see as an obstacle. I mean, a lot of cities are, are blue-leaning places, and being at war with them and saying the way that we are going to prosecute this, uh, this war of ideas is to use the power of preemption to limit what you can do. And left-to-center people hate that. They're like, you know, we need to let cities go. We need to let cities... Bring. And I, in, that, in those instances, I agree with the left-to-center people. Like, why are Republicans trying to micromanage local government? It gets a little weird when we get into the, the state being the left-of-center, trying to force the, uh, the more conservative, if we want to say, or the more resistant cities to undertake policies that, that they don't want to do. We want you to build a certain amount of housing. We don't like your mandates. We don't like the way you're executing those mandates. Or we don't like the way that those mandates are handed down to us. In general, we can look, we can all sit back and cherry pick and in a sense say, here's where I I like preemption. Here's where I don't like preemption. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that's not a, that's not like a governing principle. And it's also not, I think, going to lead to a coherent approach. And so, you know, I can give you some principles for 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 when preemption. I think if we're going to do it, it makes some sense. But you look at the ones that Schrager's convinced, like California. I spent the last two of the last weeks, parts of them in California, and I am deeply unimpressed with not only the state's interventions regarding let's build a transit stop here and let's fund a road project here and let's try to get growth and development here. 
But then the state's follow-up, which is, oh my gosh, those were really dumb investments and nothing happened. So we're going to, you know, basically preempt uh, local zoning control and try to force these other things to happen as a result. And I find that whole dialogue like messed up from the top. Do you follow a bad policy with another bad policy to try to correct the first bad policy? Um, I feel like that's where the the preemption uh, conversation has gotten us to today. And I wish we would just step back and and kind of uh, take this tool off the table, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah. I, so I actually sent this article to our Upzone guest, Andrew, from a few weeks ago. And ah, he, yeah, like he wrote, he said. yeah, he actually... Um, he, he said that one of the things that he said is that it feels like we're debating whether a hammer is good or bad, um, which I thought was kind of an astute insight because, you know, it's like state preemption is a tool. Zoning is a tool. And, and in the case of housing, it's like, we're trying to use this tool to, uh, address the misuse of another tool. And, you know, I think you can definitely make the case that zoning gets misused in all kinds of ways. Um, but, you know, in the case of housing and states using preemption to, you know, drive through housing outcomes, it seems like there's this, I guess, this perspective that preemption is okay in this case because the ends justify the means. Um, but I think it's just important to keep things rooted in a consistent legal principle and framework because, because like you said, you may live in a place where you don't agree with the state level perspective and where state preemption may be used, um, you know, for ends that you disagree with, regardless of where you fall on things. And I just think several municipal ju jurisdictions, you know, that I guess I will I will say that just because you don't use state preemption doesn't mean that zoning reform can't happen. We work with municipalities all the time that they do make those changes at the local level. You know, in in Indianapolis, they they had major reform to their zoning and at the same time their state was preempting them from regulating building design. So they kind of had the opposite dynamics happening compared to say California. And so I just say that to make the point that housing reform, you know, doesn't necessarily not happen without state preemption and I and I just think, you know, whether or not you can say that the tool and that way of doing things is good or bad is it, it's hard to make a blanket and matter-of-fact statement on that because the dynamics of different places all around the country are so different. It's just not easy to make to make one judgment, and it is something that we debate internally as well. And I think you know a lot of planners kind of debate this internally, and and I haven't. I, I've heard a lot of good arguments uh, both ways, and I I'm. I'm unconvinced of either approach, I guess I would say. Well, let me let me take issue with Andrew, who I think is a genius guy. So I'm 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 uh, I'm going to give a different perspective because I don't think it's deciding, you know, whether or not a hammer is good. I feel like it's whether deciding that we are going to do policy with a wrecking ball or whether we're going to do policy with a bunch of individual hammers, right? It, yeah, where do you get exactly. where do you get the outcomes that you're looking for? Um, state preemption is like a wrecking ball, right? It 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 is not able to work at the fine grain, but it's able to do broad sweeping change. 
let me give you an example of preemption. And, and in this sense, it's not state-directed uh, preemption. It was voter-directed preemption. But the bane of California is Prop 13. If we go to California and we look at Prop 13, we see a, in a sense, mandated statewide, one-size-fits-all action regarding property tax increases. If we try to understand in the truest sense what was going on that caused this, there's a lot of debate. People like to rewrite history and, and, and you know, paint it in their, their side's perspective, what have you. I think from a strong downs perspective, we can look at California in its second life cycle of the suburban experiment, recognize that local governments were raising taxes across the board because, hey, decentralized spread out development is really expensive. And voters didn't like that. They're like, we like, we, we like low taxes and we like, uh, you know, auto-oriented development. And we don't care that those two things don't go together. We are going to do a statewide mandate that limits the amount of local governments uh, to raise local property tax. The result of that preemption of local authority means that local governments have fewer tools in their toolbox to respond to stress. They have fewer tools in their toolbox to adapt and overcome and make good policy. And so what you see is that local governments, since Prop 13, have prioritized new development, new infrastructure, uh, auto dealerships, big box stores, and things that in our Ponzi scheme kind of way generate the most amount of cash up front. It has actually accelerated all the problems that we at Strong Downs are against. And it's kind of universally recognized amongst uh, policy people throughout California that Prop 13 is a bad deal um, and that cities should have more power, more authority, and more flexibility. But there's no mechanism to unwind this because once you create a preemption like this, it's very hard to back away from it. Yeah. I mean, really, this this kind of, I think, boils down to the, the principle of subsidiarity um, you know, which is the organizing principle that, you know, what individuals are able, able to do or a smaller community is able to do larger societies or larger, um, larger forms of, of government should not take over. And I feel like these kinds of discussions are fundamentally debating whether the issue of land use and in particular housing should be handled at the lo- local or state level. And, can, can I put know. a tiny bit of nuance on that? Please, yeah. Because I, I feel like subsidiarity is is one of these things that I agree with you. It, it, it's central to this conversation, and it's it's really important. And subsidiary as a principle is very aligned with a, a strong hands view of the world. But there's an aspect to subsidiary that is not simply about local control. It's about the role of, in a sense, higher levels of organization. So if you can solve a problem at the block level, that's the level the problem should be solved. Whether it's difficult to solve it, whether you're having a tough time solving it, you have to solve it at that level because that's the level that it can actually be solved. The role of the higher level of organization, whether it's the neighborhood at that point or the city at that point, is not to come in and and preempt your decision-making process. It's not to just say, well, it's your problem, you deal with it. But the role of a higher level is to actually offer assistance. You're having trouble making this decision. How do we help you make this decision? How do we help you figure this out? We can't make it for you. You have to make this decision at your level. You have to figure this out. What can we do to assist you in that? 
And and that's a kind of government that is a service as opposed to an, an, an adversary. Authority. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, that's a really important piece of nuance. And so I, you know, boil it all the way down to Chuck Marone's house. Uh, you want, you have an in-law that you want to live in your house. And so you want to construct an ADU. Who should make the decision about whether or not you should be able to make that ADU, to build that ADU um, or to have an, another unit or another couple of units on your property? You know, should it be the state? <laughs> That's a really, um, you know, large level of government. And, and I mean, in my opinion, and here, I guess here's my hot take of the day, state boundaries as geographies are frankly really dumb. And I think that they're very arbitrary when it comes to land use. And so the idea that just a state boundary would be responsible for, for carrying out major land use decisions like this as, as somebody who lives in a city that's on a state line, it just that just seems like a really dumb approach. Yeah, because what's going on in Kansas City, Missouri is the same thing that's going to go on in St. Louis, and they're both bordering very different economic uh, environments in their neighboring states. And yeah, that, that's, a, that's an absurdity. You, you create a statewide policy in Minnesota, and it has to work in Minneapolis. It has to work in my little hometown in the center of the state. And then it has to work in Moorhead, which is directly across the Red River from Fargo, which is, you know, and, 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 and again in Duluth, which is directly across the river from Superior. In Wisconsin, it's a yeah. The, I agree with you that what you what you lose in preemption is local nuance. And if you're all about local nuance, preemption, whether you whether you would like it in your community or not, you need to respect the fact that one size fits all is rarely a truism. Yeah. Well, and so and I think another thing to add another nuance to that the article brings up is this idea that, you know, all local action is, you know, necessarily driven by the nuance at the local level. Because one of the things that is brought up in this article is that, well, things should just be driven, zoning reform should just be driven by, you know, I think they said housing coalitions and activists. And I think there is a little bit of a misrepresentation that all activists are always driven by some kind of locally rooted understanding of a community because that's really not always the case. I mean, that's just the truth. I mean, a lot of the times the groups are established by larger organizations that are not in that community with a preset program to mobilize people using direct action. Um, And, you know, not necessarily saying that's that's a good or a bad thing, but I did want to point that out because, you know, not everything that has the aesthetic of localism or activism is actually driven or directly influenced by somebody who is a local based on their local understanding of a place. Um, So, you know, I, I think it's important to differentiate aesthetics from what is actually, you know, local decision making and, you know, based on what's needed in a place. And I, that's not that easy to do in practice to, to make those distinctions. Well, let me try to make the case for preemption because I, I, I think, you know, we've been very negative on it as a concept and I generally am opposed to it. I think this is a bad way to make decisions. It's, it, it, it's essentially, you know, calling in the police 
when your kids are fighting, you know, kids, you got to go work this out, right? You don't, you know, you, you yeah. do Okay. But let, let's, let's make the case for it. Right. And I think the case for it is that a, a lot of what we have done from a, a government standpoint uh, has created some really horrible incentives and horrible feedback loops at the local level. We can go back to California and I visited a number of transit stops over the last couple of weeks in California where decades ago, the state spent hundreds of millions, billions of dollars building transit lines to parking lots uh, that have no development around them, no ridership, are very low ridership, are underperforming in every way, and they're stuck. The city's got them zoned low. They, they, the neighbors fight against it. If you try to do something, the, these places are stuck, and they're stuck basically because they were given the, uh, the, the, the theory in which they were built was let's do, let's give them everything they would ever want, and then hope that the development happens. And that's just not the way the world works. It's just a really stupid way to do things. How do you get these places unstuck? And I think in a way that the tool of preemption can be a tool for getting places unstuck. If you're going to use it that way, and I actually think that that is the, the most legitimate case, I can see California going in as they have and, and saying, if you are within a certain number of feet of a transit stop, uh, you may not, A, limit development, B, uh, you know, like regulate this type of thing. You, you, you can't have height limits uh, below this. You can't have, you know, in a sense saying these are massive investments of the state that have been made in your community. We need to make these work and you can't, you can't do it differently than this. But then I would say we're going to, this law will be in place for 10 years or five years. And then it's going to go away. In other words, we're going to get things unstuck and then we're going to walk away, right? We're going to allow things to start moving and then we're going to walk away and let you handle it. Or this is going to be in place for the next 20 years, but you can opt out of this if you locally come up with your own approach that is kind of consistent with the idea that these places should incrementally grow and evolve and become more uh, productive over time. In other words, I think our goal should always be to not have the police have to be in our house managing our kids. The goal should be to train the parents to actually be like good parents and then walk away like, uh, you know, you, you got it. To me, that is a place where preemption would work. I, I've often, I mean, I've said in things like rent control, like I think rent control is a really bad idea because it arrests market feedback. But there are times, short periods of time, where a brief set of rent control can actually allow a market to return to its functioning form and be more responsive locally, where things are kind of spinning out of control. If you ever instituted rent control, it would always have to be with a time limit. If you ever institute preemption, it would also have to be with some notion of here's where it ends and here are the conditions that we're trying to create whereby this would go away and we can get back to a natural evolution of a place. Yeah. Well, does, and does that make yeah, sense? That? It, it does make sense. And I think that, you know, just because you don't call the police when your kids are fighting, that doesn't mean that the parents don't have any rules at all. And so that's kind of the other thing that I noticed from the article, kind of the framing of zoning reform being deregulatory, which I don't think is the case at all. You know, I think it's a misrepresentation of kind of what that overall 
movement is doing on the ground and what a lot of local communities are doing these days. Again, zoning is a tool um, and it's a tool that has some purposes. It gets misused in a lot of ways. Um, And, you know, a reform zoning approach, I think, is one that recognizes that cities are dynamic, complex systems and, you know, are rules that are straightforward and simple and well understood and based on on principles that allow systems to thrive. And, you know, I think that's that's kind of what gets missed. And I, I think inherent in so many places, zoning just doesn't work very well. And that's really kind of the fundamental problem beyond housing. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't mean just like deregulating everything and just letting, letting whatever happen. Um, but you know, reform is really badly needed and local communities can't just freeze in place forever. Can, can I give an analogy? And this is an analogy that I've, I've used a lot in my talks recently. We all recognize that a rainforest as a complex adaptive system will have an order that emerges from it with all these different parts of it working independently. If you go and you rip down a rainforest and you know you destroy it, you burn it to the ground, but then you decide you want to get it back, you, you can't just go out and plant a rainforest, right? You can't. You can't plant it. And in fact, there have been attempts to do this where they go and say, well, what is what are the components of a rainforest? Well, there's this kind of tree and there's this kind of shrub and there's this kind of bird and there's this kind of that. And they 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 bring those things in and they create they put them in place and then weeds grow up. It it doesn't it doesn't work. Because what happens is that a rainforest is something that emerges over a long period of time over a lot of complex interactions. We can say this with any natural ecosystem. I think we need to look at cities as, you know, ecosystems. And what has happened in the 20th century is that we took these ecosystems that had their own internal functioning and we stripped that all out. And we said, you're not going to function in a complex way. You're going to function in a a very kind of simplistic way, a complicated way, but very simplistic. And you're going to do one thing and one thing well. You're going to grow. You're going to replicate yourself. You're going to repeat over and over and over again. And, you know, zoning is a mechanism to do that. State control is a a mechanism to do that. Highway investments and infrastructure investments from the federal government and the state government are, are mechanisms to do that repeating function over and over. What I see us at now is recognizing that our cities need to become complex ecosystems again. They need to get that internal adaptation again. And there's a there's a gut reaction we have at the policy level, particularly amongst like policy wonks, which is, gosh, these local people are stupid. Gosh, these local people are parochial. Gosh, these local people are mean or whatever, racist. I use your adjective. We need to tell them what to do. And I think what lacks is like a recognition that that's actually what caused the problem in the first place. Now, on the other side, the reaction is often, well, then let's just, you know, we burn the rainforest to the ground. Let's just walk away and let it reestablish itself. And the reality is, is that you're just going to get weeds. You actually need some transition framework to get you from what today is a very vertical, very top-down, very growth-oriented style of building cities to a very bottom-up, organic, adaptive, you know, complex feedback loop kind of version of a city. 
you won't do that overnight. You won't do that by going cold turkey. You actually need a transition. And so when I lay out preemption as like a short-term window, that's, that's the framework that I'm thinking of it in. If you're going to do preemption, do it for a short period of time, have an exit strategy, have an opt-out strategy, and basically go seed great neighborhoods and great places. But then recognize that the, the seeding needs to grow and you're not going to do that from the top down. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And it reminds me that I want to uh, read Nolan Gray's book, Arbitrary Lines. Book. I, mm-hmm. I heard your interview with him la- earlier this week, I think it was. Um, so that reminds me that I, I want to read that because he actually makes the case, I think, completely against zoning, which I think yeah. is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I think him and I in a in a real world would have a lot to agree on how we would go about doing that. I think his gut instinct is to just get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, like <laughs> let, let let things regrow naturally. Um, I'm a little bit more of a, a, a bottom-up interventionist. Yeah. Um, but we both agree that the top-down interventionist is the is the enemy of uh, the strong city. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. I think it'll be an, an interesting read. I think that's a good way of putting it, a bottom-up interventionist. <laughs> um, that's. Uh, <laughs> I think I would very much align with that, but just for fun. It'd be fun to read this book too. <laughs> read it. It's a very good book. Um, Everybody should read it. Excellent. I think we can leave it there. Great discussion. Uh, we can go to the down zone before we finish today, which is part of the show where we can share anything we've been reading, watching, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. So Chuck, it's been a few weeks. Hopefully you've uh, had a lot of fun <laughs> in California and traveling over the past few weeks. Maybe got a few new books in. Yeah, well, uh, Stella and I, um, my youngest, have been watching Obi-Wan. I think I might have mentioned this last time we were on. Is it good? And uh, yeah, we just finished it. It was fantastic. It was really good. It, it was, um, it, it hit everything that we were hoping it would hit. So yeah, I'm very excited. There's a book called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment by Daniel Kahneman. If you're familiar with that name, it's because Daniel Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, which is one of the it's it's one of the core books that I recommend everybody who's interested in strong towns reads. Uh, this book Noise is uh, written by him and a couple other people, and it's 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 very good. It's very interesting. You know, the idea that as we look at data, as we make decisions, as we process information, um, there are biases that uh, that we come into play with, and some of those biases are judgment biases. But some of them are noise biases. In other words, we shoot at a target. And uh, I remember it, when I was in basic training, there were some people who would, you know, always hit just right of the target, hit just right of the target, or or hit in a certain way. And you could look at it and say, well, you have a bias in that direction that we need to correct for. But then there were other pe- people who, when they would shoot at a target, they were just all over the place, right? Um, that's noise. And uh, it's very hard to correct for noise. Uh, but this book is kind of getting into how to recognize the difference between the two and how to, uh, you know, it's often because we can recognize the one form of bias, uh, we can hone in on it and try to really refine it and get rid of that. Uh, but the reality is, is that when we're overwhelmed with noise, 
uh, all the other biases kind of get canceled out. And so we have to deal with this uh, noisy world problem. And yeah, the book is just very good. I'd, I'd recommend it for everybody. Are there examples in your own life where you could see this applying? Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're interviewing candidates now for a position. And one of the things that we did this time, we try to learn every time we do it because we don't know who the people are. We send, we, we send them questionnaires and then they send stuff back to us and we, we don't know who they are. But we have found over time that we tend to rate the early submissions poorly and the middle submissions better and the late submissions kind of poorly as well. And there's a, there's a mindset we developed that, well, the people who do it quickly uh, are not really thinking and the people who do it late are kind of maybe procrastinators and that's reflected in their work. And then the people in the middle are maybe more thoughtful. And so what we did this time is we randomized it. So we, we, we don't have them delivered to us in time sequence. We have them, the time sequence randomized. So the very first one I read was the best one of all of them. And that's never happened before. And I, I, you know, those are trying to, to identify, is this really a, a bias that we have developed or was it an insight and we were just experiencing the noise problem? Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm curious if it's as you continue this experiment, if it is a if it is a bias or if it's an insight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so I've kind of been on a movie kick lately. Uh, last Ooh. week I was talking about. Yeah, I last week I was telling Daniel, and I'm sure this is very unrelatable to you, but I was watching House of Gucci and thought it was actually really good. Um, and this, I know, totally unrelatable. I was trying to, you. to like not roll my eyes or anything. I don't I think I did roll my eyes, but I'm like house of, I thought you were going to say house of cards and I'm like, yeah, you know, okay. It has the, the same actor from, uh, margin call, the guy who plays the boss in margin call that I just think is a really compelling actor. Um, and so this week I watched Spencer, which is another recent movie. It's basically psychological drama about princess diana's last christmas with the prince charles family and are you joking? basically yeah like, it follows they made her. a movie out of that they did and it follows okay. her over the course of like three days where she's basically expected to participate in all the traditions but is also anguishing over the confirmation of her husband's affair and so the, her interaction with other people in the movie is kind of limited. It's mostly just focusing on her um, and oftentimes alone. It's actually really kind of, I thought it was a really bizarre movie <laughs> um, and really sad, but but beautifully shot. The actress that's in it w played her really well um, and actually looked a lot like her. And when I was reading about the movie after I had watched it, I noticed that there's a lot of opinions about it and I guess my perspective comes from somebody who's kind of a distant spectator of the Princess Diana tragedy because I was not old enough to really remember her or remember her death. Um, I was. So yeah, yeah, in the in the reviews, I noticed there's a lot of really strong opinions about this movie and how it represented her and the royal family. And um, you know, I, I guess I just don't really have a super opinion about the royal family. <laughs> Uh, in general, or Princess Diana, but it was a bizarre and weird movie, and I kind of liked it. I remember when she passed away, and uh, the reaction was, you know, as it is with all things 
royal family. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought you were just saying like, all things in general. No, no, no. But princessy, it was, it was yeah. uh, in some ways, you know, a, a mirror on our uh, culture and, and, you know, not being uh, from England. I mean, it, it was interpreted here in just strange ways. I remember saying to my wife, I'm like, I wonder what would happen if like Mother Teresa died, you know, and, and I was in a sense like juxtaposing those like, and not that, not that Princess Diana was not a good person and didn't do good things, but like, you know, being chased around by paparazzi is, it, it's, it's, it was tragic in many ways. Um, but then like Mother Teresa died like a couple of days later. I remember uh, just having that uh, kind of moment where it's like, okay, this great person who you talk about giving of your life, um, you know, uh, literally gave of her life, gave, um, you know, her existence to helping the the most impoverished and the most challenged and the most difficult um, as this like really inspiring story. And to me, a, a huge contrast to the kind of, you know, hedonism of, uh, of sometimes, uh, not necessarily the royals themselves, although I think you could make that case, but certainly our obsession with them. And yeah, it was an accentuation point uh, around my dismay with our obsession with Prince Harry and Prince this and that. But that's interesting. I will not be judgy to you if you enjoyed the movie, Abby. <laughs> yeah, I, it was, uh, I feel like the people have strong opinions about it because they have strong opinions about, I guess, Princess Diana and her role in the family yeah. and yeah. maybe the royal family in general. I just, I, I feel like the royal family maybe is not as, well, I don't, you know, maybe it's very, re maybe they're very relevant to people in England, but here it doesn't seem like they're a discussion of everyday life. Maybe that it's just the world I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, it's a Kardashian esque kind of thing. Do you, do you, right. <laughs> did you watch, did you see Hamilton? No. Oh, okay. Um, you, you should really see Hamilton. It is, it is, it, to me, it's the most genius work of art done in the last decade. I mean, I, I think it is genius in so many ways, but in that, in that play, there is the King of England and the King of England is a, is a fool. He's, he's kind of funny and he's, um, I don't know. He he's a he's a just a fun character. Like everything about him is kind of cheeky and fun, and 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 in a way they're making fun of him. But I was I heard the story once, and I think it was Lin Manuel Miranda, the the creator of Hamilton. But it might not. It might have been someone else. But they were talking about performing this in England, and when the king comes out, it is like a huge laugh line. Like it is hilarious. Like he is a funny, funny character. And it's hard not to, because a lot of this is like hip hop and he has this uh, almost like Beatles-esque way of singing. And, you know, there's da-da-da-da-da. And it's, it's very like fun. And it just brings the house down. Like it's hilarious. It's, it's a riot. And they said in England, it was like stone silence. Like nobody thought this was funny at all. Really? And yeah, yeah. And I'm like, wow, it's, it, it does show you that, you know, it's just a different, it's a different sensitivity. It's a different culture, right? Yeah, different um, sense of humor. Yeah, probably. a different understanding. And I've I've tried to get it in that context, but yeah, I thought that I thought that insight was uh, was hilarious. You know that 
we would get a laugh at this and uh, and they would not. And yeah. you know, our cultures are very similar, but obviously in some ways very different. Yeah, in some ways very, very different. Well, I'll, I'll have to watch that. Are you referring to uh, Hamilton by Disney from 2020? Okay, so what they did, it's a play, right? It's been okay. out for, I don't know, seven, eight years. Um, it's a Broadway play. And you know, I was able to see it live when it came to Minneapolis. Um, they have since done a recording of it, and you can now watch the play. Okay, that must performed. be what I'm seeing. Yep, by the original cast. It's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like you will enjoy that, but you won't be left stunned the way you would be if you saw it in person because in you know it's not a movie meant to watch at home it's a play meant to experience and it does it it just is stunning i I remember walking out of there going i i've i've rarely felt this way in my life where i've been through this thing that has just left me in many ways just speechless so yeah it's a it was it was quite an experience well, I um, have access to Disney Plus now, so it looks like I'll be able to get this, and I'll let you know if I was. Well, let me know about the King. Just... He's so much fun. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I'll watch this over the weekend. Cool. Well, good to see you, Chuck. Thanks nice for to joining you. me today, and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzone. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye.